We're excited. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Ben. Uh, when Brent asked me over a month ago if I would be interested in doing this, from my beach chair in the warm sun, I thought, yeah, sure, October 11th, that's really far away, no problem. But sure enough, uh, it came a lot faster than I thought. And uh, we emailed back and forth, and I at one point mentioned to him that I was equal parts excited and terrified. And so this morning, I am equal parts excited and terrified <laughs> to be in front of you. And excited because it's always a privilege to speak God's word and God's truth. And I feel, especially after our time in worship this morning, that this is a very timely word for us. It's, it's just God's word, and I'm going to say it to you this morning, and, uh, and terrified because there's one of me and many of you. <laughs> and my typical audience uh, are 11-year-olds, and so I know way more than they do. <laughs> and so that's not terrifying. Um, my parents are here this morning, and I know that they're probably going to be embarrassed that I've highlighted them. Uh, however, I should point them out, and uh, if you hadn't y haven't yet had a chance to say hi to them this morning, feel free to do so. And if you're wondering what you can say to them, feel free to just compliment them on how beautiful their daughter is. <laughs> so, just saying, feel free. Anyway, <laughs> I, I've asked Joel to come up and read our scripture for us this morning. It's Esther 4, 1 to 17. And I think Isaac has it up on the slides as well. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. <coughs> he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate, clothed in sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, that's best person, <laughs> one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai and to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of all of the people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther, Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, 
release and deliver to arise from the Jews to another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews you found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night, three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, and then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's just pray before we get started. God, I thank you that uh, you still speak to us today through your word, and so Father, I just ask that uh, we would just hear what it is that you have to say uh, to us this morning. And God, may my words be clear uh, and they be uh, seasoned with salt. And so, Father, I just ask uh, that you would come now and speak to us through what you, ha what you have for us. Uh, as Brent and Joe have outlined over the last few weeks, uh, life in the Persian palace was excessive, opulent, and indulgent. As, uh, the king was a straight-up male chauvinist. Uh, Haman, a man full of hate, was given a whole lot of influence and power in the king's court. I with a few words, the Jews were set to be wiped out. In chapter 4, we get to see a little bit more of what life was like in Esther inside the king's palace. Esther had attendants who kept her informed about the happenings outside the palace walls. Without these messengers, Esther would have been completely oblivious to the plan that was set to happen to the Jews. It was not as though she and King Ahasuerus or Xerxes or whatever we want to call him, it's not easy, <laughs> have some pillow talk at the end of their day where they catch up on the day's events and he informs her of this plan uh, to kill the Jews. Esther only finds out about the plot to kill the Jews because of Mordecai's public mourning. Word travels back to Esther. She is upset by his mourning, and she has clothes sent to him. When he refuses to take the clothing, she asks her eunuch, Hathach, or hey, whatever his name is, to find out what all the mourning is about. After a back and forth between Esther, Hathach, and Mordecai, Esther learns of the plot to kill the Jews. Esther would immediately know that the stakes were high. Esther is well-versed in the customs and practices in the king's court. She knows very well, as would Mordecai, that entering the king's presence without being requested would result in death. Furthermore, Esther's favor with the king seems to have cooled considering it had been 30 days since she was last summoned into his presence. Knowing what we know about the king and his drunken escapades, being intolerant of Queen Vashti, refusal, or Queen Vashti's refusal to follow his demands, we can assume that he would not take kindly to an unsolicited visitor. Mordecai's response to Esther highlights that there is no easy choice for her. Saying and doing nothing could still result in her being killed as once the decree was put into motion, she would not be able to keep her ethnicity a secret. So her choices are say nothing and the Jews will most certainly die or enter the presence of the king requesting a pardon for the Jews, which would probably result in her losing her own life. Rock, hard place. 
even if Esther entered the king's presence and the king ignored the court law and was not put to death, there was no guarantee that the king would be inclined to grant her request to spare the Jews. In the face of potential humiliation and death, Esther resolved to do it anyway. If I perish, I perish. However, we should not elevate her for what she did. Instead, this is an illustration of God's plan and provision for the Jews. Esther didn't just happen to be beautiful. She didn't just happen to fit the criteria when the king was looking for a new wife. She didn't just happen to gain favor with the king. Esther didn't just happen to be in the palace when a pronouncement of death was made for all Jews in Persia. Regardless of the situation and circumstance in which the Jews and Esther found themselves, God was in control. Brian Gregory highlights this, and it's just to add a little bit to what I was saying, and that is that perhaps there is something larger at work here than Agagite hatred, which Brent highlighted last week uh, as that tension between Mordecai and Haman. It's not just him overreacting. There's actually a history there. Uh, And so it's not just Agagite hatred and the fate of the lots as the date had been determined by chance. Uh, Perhaps there is a deeper providential plan at work that has placed Esther in this fortuitous position for such a time as this. God's plan exists regardless of the posture of our hearts toward him. It wasn't because Esther was this great woman that God provided for the Jews. Instead, God had a plan, and she was simply willing to lay it all on the line and obey. God used her obedience to make a way for the Jews. Esther's phrase, if I perish, I perish, points us ahead to a similar phrase uttered by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his death. And so God has a plan for the Jews through Esther, God has a plan for humanity through Jesus. And so King Ahasuerus and Haman, try as they might, could not be or would not be the ones to get in God's way. They were of no match to what God could do through Esther. It is not in God's plan to give up on us and leave us to our own devices. Redemption and reconciliation have always been a part of his plan. All scripture speaks about salvation, and prophesies about a coming Savior. The Father has made a way for us to be in relationship with him because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He paid once and for all. This is the demonstration of his great love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Luke 22, 39 to 42, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is what we read. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him, skipping to verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus asks for another way. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus pleading to the Father for another way demonstrates his humanity, yet him also being fully God, he knows there is no other way, and he obeys. 
He goes willingly to the cross, not just to die a human death, but also to carry the weight of sin in order that all people may be fully restored to him. This is the depth of love that he has for us. This is sacrificial love. He gave it all, laying aside his divinity, stepping down from a perfect heaven to a broken earth, laying all of our sin on himself, carrying it away forever and making us perfect in the sight of God with his righteousness so that there would be a way for us to be able to know him and be known by him. Because of his righteousness given to us, we are able to enter his presence boldly and confidently, knowing that we are welcomed and desired. Understanding what Jesus did on the cross enables us to say, not my will, but yours be done. I will follow you, and if I perish, I perish. When our hearts understand the magnitude of what he did on the cross, we are propelled toward obedience. When we sing or read about the death that he suffered in our place and his glorious resurrection in which we share, our hearts should swell with that desire to worship him. When we are reminded that because of death's defeat at his resurrection, we now live courageously, no longer slaves to fear or death. We shouldn't stifle our heart's response. Rather, we, we should let it propel us forward. And for Kenyanga, it propels him forward into Burundi, into prison, to be able to say, God does not lie. He will provide. And so thank you for that. That was awesome. <clears throat> Allowing ourselves to be affected by the cross results in us wanting to be obedient. We want his ways over our own because we know that we can trust him because he's already given us his very best. He is a good and faithful father. When our hearts are geared towards knowing God and being known by him, instead of just getting what we want from God, we, can truly, we then can be truly satisfied in the things that he has for us. The entire biblical narrative speaks to God reconciling people to himself. And so God's plan for Esther and the Jews, God's plan for humanity through Jesus, and God's plan for us today, and the fact that he provides for us today. And so the entire biblical narrative speaks to God reconciling people to himself. He keeps his covenantal promises. He does not lie. I love that. <laughs> and does not let anything stand in his way. Throughout the Old Testament and the New, with the exception of Jesus, he doesn't wait for the most spirit-filled person or someone who has demonstrated great character to work through. He uses ordinary, flawed people to accomplish his plans and purposes. With Esther, we get to see the whole story. We get to see it from beginning to end. We don't really get to see all the in-between. We read five years in one line or 30 days in one line. And so we get the whole story. But we can see through this story how God provided for uh, and had a plan of salvation for the Jews through Esther's obedience. With the details of our own lives, we don't get to see the whole picture. We're in it. We're halfway or partway, quarterway, almost to the end way. We are in it, and oftentimes we don't see the whole picture. It's sometimes hard to see God at work when we're overwhelmed by the details of our lives. But reading the stories of Esther, of David, of Noah, 
Joseph, Moses, and others, speaks to us that when there seemed to be no other way, God made a way. We see God's faithfulness at work and can trust him to be faithful in his work in us. As much as our Western culture would lead us to believe that we have control over our lives, we don't. We make plans, we have hopes, we have dreams, we have expectations, uh, and we have all of those for ourselves and for the people that we love. And many of these dreams and plans and hopes are good dreams and plans and hopes. But often, life doesn't go according to plan. So most recently, and Joel knows I'm going to say this, and some of you might know this, but most recently, uh, Joel and I found ourselves in a situation over which we had no control. As some of you know, uh, we made the trip to the emergency room one Friday night at the end of August, and after a long time waiting, the doctor confirmed what I had told Joel was my fear uh, as we drove to the hospital, an ectopic pregnancy. And for those of you that don't know what that is, I'll just briefly explain, because we found that many people don't know. Uh, It's when the baby forms in the fallopian tube rather than the uterus. And so the doctor said she's not quite sure what happened. Um, We had a follow-up, and she couldn't really tell me why it happened. It just did. We hadn't been trying to get pregnant. However, we very much desired to have children and raise a family of our own. This is a part of our plan. Once the initial response of dealing with the physical aspects of surgery had subsided, it was only then we had the opportunity to emotionally process what we had just experienced. I remember praying and asking God, why? Why this kind of pregnancy? Why not a normal one? You could do it, God, so why this? I felt this surge of frustration and disappointment and anger and then sadness and grief. And in that moment, I was reminded of what I often hear when things don't go according to my plan. Do you trust me? I trust that God provides and that he is in control and that he does have a plan even in this. We will trust him even if that means we never have our own biological children, we s- which we don't actually think, but we will trust that. We say, okay, not my way, your way. Every step of the way, we remember whose we are, whose our baby is, was, and who is in control. We trust that he has a plan, and even if we can't see all of the parts right now, we say, okay, God, it's up to you. We can lean into this because all of Scripture speaks to God's great plan for his people, for us. Not just because we've just decided to respond that way, it's because God's word says that it is this way. Life happens, suffering happens, awful things happen in this fallen world, but we need to remember that the circumstances of life are not above him. It is under his authority. He has overcome. In this world, you will have many trials, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He is Lord over it all. This is not something that comes easily. Trust me. (laughs) I know. I speak these words as much to myself as I speak them to you this morning. 
Just as I'm sure that it was not an, an easy decision for Esther to knowingly put her life on the line for the Jews, yet her act of obedience allowed God to use her to save the Jews. Therefore, when we obey and we, when, when we surrender our way for God's way, he will meet us in it. We can be encouraged by God's faithfulness and provision that we read about in Scripture. Esther had no control over the time in history in which she lived, the country where she lived, her ethnicity, her beauty, her culture, and she, but she could control one thing, her response, the response to the situation in which she found herself. She could choose to ignore Mordecai's command, but she didn't. God's provision does not mean that we can take a back seat and put our feet up and just say, oh, God will provide. I don't have to do anything. It doesn't abdicate us from our responsibility. But God will do uh, and wait for God to do for us what he's equipped us through his Holy Spirit. God used Esther's obedience, what she could do, to save the Jews. God uses our obedience to do great things for him, which brings him glory. I recently read a line uh, by an author online who stated that when her prayers became centered around knowing God's presence, instead of seeking him out merely for answers, she was able to trust him when things did not seem to go according to plan. The same can be said for all of us. The Holy Spirit alive in us gives us fresh courage, fresh hope, fresh obedience when everything feels like it's falling apart. All we have to do is ask. But the truth is, it's not falling apart. Jesus has made a way. God is in control, and he has a plan. And so, when Esther enters the presence of the king uninvited, requesting a pardon for the Jews, God provides. The same for us. When our hopes and dreams seem lost, God provides. When, when you get cancer, God provides. When you feel nothing, God provides. When you lose your job, God provides. When you lose a baby, God provides. And when everything feels out of control, God provides. When life is overwhelming, and we're dealing with loss, tragedy, disappointment, failure, we can live in the security that God will provide for us. He is in control. He is redeeming and repurposing failed plans, disappointments, discouragements, and putting new hopes, new dreams, and new desires in our hearts for our good and for his glory. Karen Job writes, For if our hearts are set on him and his love for us on the cross, we will be able to take up our cross and follow him, no matter what crisis we face or what crucible of testing we are in. And so, let's set our hearts on him. That is the bit that we can do. We can decide, we can choose, we can do that bit, and the rest is up to God. Let's remember his love for us and what he accomplished for us on the cross and what he has called us to, obedience. And so today, if you feel as though whatever it is that you're dealing with is too much, we do want to pray for you. And that 
is something that we often do. You know that. That's why we're here. <laughs> Otherwise, what are we doing? Uh, and so we want to pray for a, fre a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit for you to be able to walk in confidence of the plan for your, that God has for you and whatever the circumstances of your life might be right now. So I'm just going to pray, and then Ben's going to come. So God, I do thank you that regardless of the circumstances of our lives, you are in control. God, whatever that looks like, whatever that might be, God, whatever it is that we're facing, you are in control. And so, God, we just ask uh, that you would come now. Would you speak to us uh, in, in where, we're, where we're at? And so, Father, I just thank you that you do not uh, leave us alone and that you do not lie. Amen.